Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. Canada's federal, provincial, and territorial governments have over the last 20 years routinely blown their budgets. Between fiscal year 2000-2001 and today, Canada's senior governments have overshot their targets by a combined $119 billion, while underestimating revenue by as much as $143 billion. Going into COVID-19, senior governments spent $3,100 more per Canadian than expected and taxed us $3,800 more than they would have had they met their past budget commitments. C.D. Howe Institute CEO Bill Robson and co-author Miles Wu note that these annual revenue and spending overshoots tend to go together. So I asked Robson, how did we get here in the first place? It's not easy to say confidently why it's happened in every instance, but the pattern is so pronounced that you have to think something is driving this result uh, across governments and over this entire period. So my best guess is this, that they have tended... Uh, and this would be finance ministers perhaps trying to lower expectations at the beginning of the year, they make rather conservative revenue projections. And that's to kind of damp expectations for uh, big spending increases and maybe uh, help them uh, overachieve on the bottom line if there's a lot of attention to government deficits. Uh, Then during the course of the year when revenue comes in ahead of expectations, the pressure to spend more gets overwhelming. And so you see these spending overshoots. Uh, There may be other reasons, but when I look across the entire country over this period, that's the one that stands out to me as the likeliest. So is this a public relations-based financial engineering stunt? You under-forecast revenue, then over-deliver on spending? Managing expectations is a key part of what a finance minister does. Um, it's not easy often for finance ministers to hold the line because they tend to be kind of the sole voice at the table or maybe the treasury board minister. Or if you're Paul Martin back in the day, you had the prime minister in your corner. Um, But you tend to be outnumbered by the people who want to see more spending. And one of the tools that you have at your disposal is to make a budget projection that's uh, looking a little skinny. Uh, Of course, a lot of other organizations do that. Uh, There are many businesses, uh, there are many not-for-profits who are for forecasting for zero on the bottom line, who will see the outcomes uh, on the upside or the downside as not equal in importance. You really want to avoid that downside um, uh, impact. So uh, I'm not saying that there aren't reasons for it. We might, uh, you know, cut them a little slack. Uh, The problem is, though, that over time, uh, the cumulative impact of this on the on the size of budgets and arguably on accountability for public money is pretty deleterious. I'm looking for a silver lining here. Your research has concluded governments spent 3100 more dollars per Canadian than expected over that period, but also raised 3800 more dollars than expected through tax increases. Yes, nobody likes to pay more tax, but at least governments were not spending more than we were bringing in. No, that's true. They, uh, the, the, if the motivation here was to imp- ensure a better bottom line, uh, then overall they succeeded. And uh, there's a very high profile example of this. It's a little way in the past now, but it's, I think, helpful for understanding the dynamic. Uh, I mentioned Paul Martin and Jean Chrétien. Uh, Paul Martin inherited a big deficit um, and initially 
uh, didn't seem that inclined to do much about it. But as public opinion began to turn uh, and and see this as a problem, uh, he really did uh, work very hard to get back into surplus. And he used this tool. It was a matter of controversy at the time uh, in order to ensure that they hit some bottom line targets. Uh, there was some blowouts pending uh, as, as they came in ahead of their projections. Um, but the overall result was highly successful. We had a bit of a debt crisis at the federal level in the 1990s, uh, and he resolved it. So yes, um, it's true that we've seen better bottom lines than the budgets were projecting on average. And um, going into COVID and all the borrowing that's happened over the last little while, you do have to count that as a as a silver lining indeed. Now, if Alberta has overshot by $20 billion, BC, Ontario, Quebec, about $15 billion. But the smaller provinces have largely kept their budgets and projections in line comparatively. Is this a function of the bigger you are, the more you overshoot? Uh, I don't think it's to do with size so much as it is to do with the nature of your revenues. Mm. If you're a natural resource dependent province, there's a lot more uncertainty in your forecasting. Uh, If it's oil that matters, as would be the case for Alberta and Newfoundland and Saskatchewan, not quite so much, but certainly uh, uh, for them it matters as well. Uh, then the range of uncertainty when you're looking ahead is just that much bigger because there's much likelier to be big swings in the price of oil and the profits and the royalties uh, from oil production than there would be in, say, personal income taxes. So I think it's the revenue profile that more than anything else uh, dictates whether governments are going to have trouble hitting their budget targets. Um, and and so, again, in, in cutting them slack, I think you want to make allowance for that. Um, but it doesn't excuse the spending overshoots. Uh, everybody knows in principle that if you have a good year uh, in a volatile business, you ought to be a little readier to set something aside for the bad years. And um, what's striking about their resource-dependent provinces is that doesn't seem to have been the case more often than not. They've kind of spent a lot of the revenue as it came in, and then when the bad times hit, they didn't have that cushion. What does the recent tendency for governments to report negative adjustments below the line in their financial reports mean? This is an area that um, concerns me because it is so opaque. In general, one of the things that I hope this project can do uh, is encourage people to look at government budgets and financial statements with a little bit less of a feeling of, oh, I'm not going to understand this than I think a lot of us uh, feel. Because if you're not familiar with them, it's a bit of a peculiar area. It's like having to decode something. Um, But in fact, many Uh, many governments, especially in their financial statements, and this is true of cities as well. I mean, city budgeting is a very uh, weird and and wonderful area. But when you look at the financial statements of cities, like many governments, they're actually not uh, that complicated. It's often on one page. They'll show you the revenue and the expense and the bottom line. And in many cases, and certainly this is desirable, you ought to be able to compare it with the budget. The problem with these below-the-line entries, these adjustments that happen uh, in between the deficit and then the change in the accumulated deficit or surplus, uh, uh, whatever it happens to be, is that those are, by their nature, things that aren't anticipated by budgets. So it might be and, and there's nothing wrong with this from an accounting point of view. If you have a big, uh, say, municipally owned electric utility, 
Uh, that's not part of the budget. If it suffers a loss or if it does well, then that's going to come in below the line. But the problem is, as I say, it's below the line. It's not something that's in budgets. And to the extent that these things are appearing all the time, uh, they're kind of driving a wedge between what the budget says and what the result is. And that wedge is a very weird uh, one. You know, the, the average person looking at financial statements might have a pretty good idea what the revenue and the expense and the balance is. But then what's this weird thing below the line? And one of the things that we noticed uh, looking at the pattern over the years is the good news is they're getting smaller, uh, but the bad news is that they happen a lot and lately they've tended to be negative. And then you have to wonder if there if there's a tendency for them to be negative, maybe some of the things that are causing them really ought to be disclosed in the budget as opposed to kind of put in this below the line entry that hardly anybody looks at and hardly anybody understands. How does COVID-19 and the pandemic-related debt spending throw a wrench into the monkey works of trying to keep track of all of this stuff? Well, it's certainly going to make the uh, the, the record over time look very different. And in some respects, uh, if you, if you uh, think about the um, uh, criteria that you use in saying, did governments do sensible things or unsensible things, um, the reaction to COVID on at a very high level was was not a bad one we had revenue impacts negative revenue impacts and governments let that happen uh, to have raised taxes in the middle of 2020 would not have been a good thing um, and there were new spending programs to deal with an unprecedented kind of economic downturn and if you if you just go to a, a, a you know a textbook a second year uh, textbook on how government budgets should respond to the economy. That's what they say you should do. If the economy goes into a slump, let revenue go down, let spending go up, and uh, your budget is going to go, you know, from a, from the direction of surplus to the direction of a deficit. Um, by contrast, if there's a boom, then the opposite should happen. Uh, revenues should be going up, and spending should be down, and your budget should be going uh, from a deficit toward a surplus. That's actually good macroeconomic management. So uh, when we look back on the COVID episode, there's going to be a lot not to like. Uh, we do have much higher debts now, uh, and I think we're going to find that a lot of the spending in, in retrospect looks excessive or maybe even quite misguided. Um, but uh, it's actually an improvement from the past situation because just to uh, elaborate the point we were on earlier about spending those unexpected revenues, that's exactly not what you're supposed to do. Uh, government budgets are supposed to respond to booms. Uh, by by uh, letting spending go down and, and revenue go up. And in fact, that's not the pattern that we saw over the years. So it's a, it's a bit of a mixed picture, um, but I'm not critical of the direction of the response to COVID. Maybe the magnitude of it is something we're going to be trying to correct in the future. You've written that there are two threats that loom as a result of the impact of COVID-19 debt spending. One is a greater temptation to manage the bottom line, and the other is increased upward pressure on taxes and pressure to cut services. First, what do you mean by manage the bottom line? Well, one of the reasons that uh, it inevitably comes to mind when you look at this tendency for governments to spend these windfall revenues is that they've got a bottom line target and they're working on their 
spending, particularly maybe their revenues as well, in order to achieve that bottom line. Um, managing your earnings in a corporate setting is not a good thing. If an auditor uh, suspects that you are uh, spending extra to try and achieve a bottom line target or doing something about the timing of your revenues, uh, that's going to be a red flag and that's often going to be a qualified opinion. Now, in, in many cases, uh, the governments are able to stay on the right side of what the uh, uh, auditors general uh, are, are willing to approve, but sometimes they're not. I mean, one of the things that we look at in our report card is the opinions of the legislative auditors, the auditor generals, and if they give a qualified opinion, that's a that's a big markdown for us because that right away signals that there's a problem. And often the reason there's a problem is because governments are trying to do something to make their bottom line look better. So one of the things that concerns me about this coming era where there is going to be so much more attention to the bottom line, we're going to be more worried about credit ratings than we were. Uh, we're going to be more concerned about how those debt balances look to potential buyers of government debt is that governments are going to be doing a little bit more to try and make sure that they hit those bottom line targets. And often what that means is that they'll be looking for ways to recognize revenue in one year versus another year, depending on what's convenient, or maybe uh, bring spending forward or move spending back or do other things that uh, really just are, aren't consistent with good financial reporting, all motivated by this desire to have a certain result at the bottom line. As we come out on the tail end of COVID-19, we're increasingly concerned about stagflation. Can you tax, increase taxes in that environment successfully? One of the things that inflation does is it imposes invisible tax increases. Uh, We're taxed on nominal incomes, uh, nominal spending also, uh, but nominal incomes particularly is a concern because um, as you get increases, particularly in, in uh, corporate profits, uh, in an inflationary environment, a lot of that is illusory. Uh, you might be selling something out of inventory that costs you less uh, than you're able to sell it for because the pr- because prices rose meanwhile, uh, but when you replace it, uh, you're going to have to pay more. And so uh, inflation is a tax directly on people who hold cash. Uh, because the the money is worth less and money's a liability of the government, uh, but it also does enable governments to levy tax increases that people don't notice, and uh, that's got to be a concern because uh, uh, as, as we're going to have higher inflation for quite a while now. I mean, the central bank projections themselves are showing that they may talk about inflation being transitory, but we're talking years, not weeks or months. And in that environment, uh, we will pay more tax uh, even without governments raising rates. Uh, can they? Uh, compound the damage by by raising rates formally, uh, I think inevitably we will see some tax increases because uh, this huge increase in spending, uh, right now the federal government's been borrowing a lot of it and it has kind of given people the sense that, hey, they can borrow at almost no cost. There's no limit to this. Uh, the trouble is uh, a lot of governments in the world have been behaving that way. The United States, uh, very prominently among them, and uh, those governments are big and the amount of the borrowing they're doing is big as well. So uh, when lenders start to think a bit more about are they going to get repaid and are they 
they going to get repaid in dollars that are worth or, or, or euros or whatever currency uh, that was, uh, you know, worth the same amount when they made the loan and inflation uh, eating that away is going to be a concern. It's going to be tougher for more marginal borrowers uh, such as Canada's federal government and certainly uh, than the for the provinces. So I think probably as we try to refill the coffers uh, from some of this extraordinary healthcare spending and the income supports, uh, we are likely to see some tax increases. So you're suggesting that legislators and voters should demand more reliable budget targets and better adherence to the targets in the future. Is there political will for that? My short answer is yes. Uh, And the reason I say that is because when you look across all the senior governments over time, and when you look at municipal governments as well, where uh, budgeting has traditionally been quite a mess, in my view, uh, what you ha- what you see is improved transparency in many ways. It used to be impossible to compare budgets to results of almost any government. Uh, now, across the senior governments, you can do that, and they provide reconciliations that are quite easy to follow. Uh, and municipally, we're starting to see that as well. And that tells me that there is some pressure for improved performance. And I think probably there's a bit of a uh, self-reinforcing thing happening there because people will pay more attention to things if it's not just a, you know, a crippling burden on them in terms of time and energy to follow the numbers and see what's going on. As, as the numbers get a bit clearer, it gets easier for people, uh, whether we're thinking about uh, parliamentarians or municipal councillors or, or taxpayers, citizens generally, to follow what's going on. We have a long way to go. Uh, one of my pet peeves, uh, and I'll be uh, uh, sort of gnashing my teeth over this during budget season, is that the reporting on budgets so often is all about uh, these promises and aspirations of the future. And to me, one of the most important things that comes out in a budget is the updated numbers for the year that's about to end. Uh, that's real in the sense that this is what they've actually been doing. And um, there's a bit of a tendency for people because the future is exciting and the present isn't quite so exciting and the past sometimes seems quite dull, uh, sort of going for that bright, shiny object of the budget promises and, and the headlines that governments put in there to distract our attention. What we really ought to be doing is looking at the results as they're coming in and saying, uh, how well are you hitting your uh, budget target from the year before? What's the actual situation of the government? And the, and the truth of the matter is that we know that budgets aren't all that reliable. So we should pay a bit less attention to the the promises and the bright, shiny objects and a bit more attention to the numbers that show what they're actually doing. And part of that involves more transparency. And your other major research report titled Good, Bad and Incomplete is just the latest in a long line of reports we've discussed on this issue. We've previously discussed the improving quality of financial reporting by Canada's senior governments. It seems to be getting better. How about during the pandemic, aside from the absence of a federal budget in 2020? Well, the absence of the federal budget was the really big uh, fall down when it comes to transparency and accountability for public money. Uh, It was unprecedented. Uh, We've had world wars and the federal government managed to deliver budgets during that period. So uh, this was a very ominous thing for me, the fact that they didn't present a budget and the fact that they politically seem to have gotten away with it. Uh, That sets a terrible precedent and I uh, fervently hope and to the extent this 
report, uh, you know, creates a little bit more attention to it and, and increases the cost of doing that sort of thing, uh, then I'll be glad. Uh, leaving that aside, though, we have tended, I think, to see uh, some continuing improvements in the transparency of government financial reporting. There are a lot of things that go into that. You want to present budgets and financial statements that the auditor will approve uh, and that are easy for people to read and that you can compare with each other. Uh, I think that's really critical. Timeliness matters as well. And on the whole, there have been improvements in timeliness. Governments are tending to publish their results a little better. Uh, in the case of budget, a little more timely way, in the case of budgets, you definitely want to be voting the budget before the fiscal year begins, not after the money's already being spent. And um, uh, in general, I think that, uh, and I'll mention at the municipal level as well, where I, I, I was quite critical of the previous situation, in many cities, it's still very hard for people to read the budget and understand what the result is going to be. Uh, but there too, we're seeing more cities nowadays that are publishing uh, budget numbers that you can compare with their financial statements. And so uh, I, it's more than just a silver lining. I think we have seen a general improvement in the quality of the reporting. And as long as we don't see another big miss like the federal government uh, not presenting a budget, it'll be possible to look back uh, in in the future and say that uh, that improving trend has continued. And as I mentioned earlier, I think there's a bit of a virtuous circle there because as the financial statements become more meaningful uh, and easier to read uh, and, and it becomes possible for a person who's not an expert in these things to look at it and and say, if I understand it uh, good, they've presented it well. If I don't understand it, it's not because I don't understand these things. It's because they didn't present it well and I should be asking them for numbers that I can make sense of. Um, then uh, that's, going to, that's going to make the imperative to produce better numbers uh, uh, all the greater. And that'll be helpful for legislators and, and municipal councillors as well because they want to understand what they're voting. You brought up two very important points. People may be amazed to learn that Canada's senior governments do not necessarily adhere to public sector accounting standards, first of all, and that they do something that we personally were taught in high school business class never to do, build a budget after you start your fiscal year. Well, yes, the the timing thing uh, should, I think, get a bit more attention uh, than it does. Uh, one of the things that... Uh, is is nice to see because it is one of the areas where there's been improvement is the lining of the the voting on budgets and and the voting on specific spending programs up in terms of time and and legislators getting their the estimates if you're talking about a senior government where they're voting particular programs so kind of to your point you would think that it would be a normal procedure to look at the overall fiscal plan and then understand the individual items that you're voting on in the context of that overall plan. And often in the past, that was not the case. Uh, in some areas of the country, in the Atlantic provinces, it, it tended to be done that way. And if you're doing that all before the beginning of the fiscal year, then you can put your hand on your heart and you can say, uh, we are uh, observing appropriate accountability for the money we're spending. The legislators are voting it before the beginning of the fiscal year, the voters and the taxpayers and the citizens can feel that we're taking this responsibility seriously. Um, if it's happening partway through the year and you're doing all these supplementary things, um, 
it's it sort of ties into the criticism I made about that in-year spending. You're just never going to make as good a decision if on the fly you say, hey, we've got uh, this money to spend. Let's find something to spend it on. That's just not sensible. Budgeting, you wouldn't do that uh, in, with a clear conscience in a, in, in a household. Um, so the, the timeliness of these things uh, matters as well. And I'm very glad to see that in, there's been an improving trend on that front. So then let's look at um, the scorecard here, the report card, as it were. While Alberta overshot on both spending and revenue, the most of any province, you're still giving it an A- minus on doing so transparently. Well, yes, uh, it would be nice for me to say that the better the quality of the financial information, the better the result. Uh, Alberta, though, is a jurisdiction that is very much dependent on natural resource revenues. It's worth mentioning not just that those things tend to be volatile and hard to forecast, but there there were a number of years during the period, the 20 years we're looking at here, uh, when oil prices surprised everybody with how strong they were after the uh, financial crisis and the crash of 2008-09. A lot of people, I mean, the the economy was very weak for a while, but natural resource prices were quite strong. Uh, China continued to grow. There was a lot of demand outside Canada. And so oil prices surprised everybody on the upside. And it's not surprising under those circumstances that Alberta uh, uh, overshot on its revenue projections. However, um, uh, whatever the extenuating circumstances, it's not necessarily the case that the quality of the financial information is going to line up with the results. Um, but I, I want to give Alberta a lot of credit for the fact that they produce uh, transparent financial statements. They get a clean audit. Uh, they've tended to be quite timely. They are among the governments that has a legislated requirement to produce their financial statements in a timely way, and they do uh, before the end of June. And all of that is all the I, I, I'll give them an additional shout out because uh, it hasn't always been the case. Alberta was presenting very confusing budgets and financial statements for a number of years early in the 20 teens. And uh, they turned all that around. Uh, and you always want to give credit where it's due when a government fixes a problem in its financial statements. Ontario did recently. If you go back 20 years, the federal government had all kinds of criticisms from their auditor general for things that they were doing that they stopped doing. So um, it's nice to see that the criteria that we're applying, actually, we've gotten a bit more stringent over time because the general quality of the financial reporting has gotten better. And so we've started to bear down on a few of the details. Um, but the governments that earned uh, A minus, A, A plus, uh, they deserve a lot of credit for that. And of course, what they're showing other governments is you can do this. None of these things is impossible. Uh, none of these things is actually all that hard to do. Uh, you just have to, uh, uh, you know, you have to take it seriously. Um, you have to take your responsibilities to the legislature and the voters seriously, and um, and you can do it. On this podcast in 2018, we talked about Ontario's reporting grade. You gave it a D. Today, it's a B. What's changed? Well, the big thing that changed in Ontario was that they were offside uh, with the legislative auditor, um, and uh, they had quarrels. It was particularly about pension accounting. Uh, it was also about the way they were recording uh, sort of as a current asset electricity revenues that they might or might not receive in the future. 
Uh, and since then, Ontario has cleaned up its act. They're getting clean audits. And um, we take those things very seriously. Uh, the legislative auditors do a very important challenge function. Uh, I might add that it's a, a shame in my mind. The value for money audits get so much of the headline. Um, but what is a critical function and it is a bit less in the news is that that uh, checking of the government's financial statements. Uh, so in Ontario's case, they had some problems with the Auditor General uh, and they got cleaned up. And more than anything else, that helps to explain uh, the improvement in their score. Um, I might just say, though, because it's relevant to Ontario uh, and, and so many other provinces, one of the things that we give a fairly high weight to in our grading is something that some people think is a bit simple-minded, and it's how close to the front of the document are the key numbers. And I, I just want to say that for a person who's not an expert in these things, but is interested and motivated and can add and subtract, and that's lots and lots of people, to put the numbers up front where they're easy to find and easy to identify is doing people a great service. Uh, and Ontario has improved in that area as well. Uh, the government that is just awful at it is the federal government when they present their budgets, when they do present their budgets. Um, they bury the key numbers in an annex, hundreds of pages into the document. And it's quite reasonable for a person who isn't an expert in these things to, to either give up um, uh, because we all have other things to do with our time than pour through government financial documents or to arrive at those numbers and think these can't be the right numbers because if they were important, they wouldn't be buried down here. Uh, or potentially in a situation like that, a person might encounter some other numbers along the way and think they must be the right numbers. Uh, so it does make a difference, I think, just how easy you make it for people to find and identify the key numbers. And Ontario has raised its game in that regard. Uh, some of the Atlantic provinces put them right up in the first 10 pages, and that's where they belong. It's a budget. Take it seriously. Put the numbers right where people can find them, and you're off to a stronger start. So if Alberta is the star student among the provinces and Ontario is the student with the most improved grade, what do we attribute Quebec's C student status for years. Well, uh, we've talked a bit already about the situations with the uh, Auditor General of the provinces, and Quebec has not received a clean opinion from its auditor for a very long time. So there are chronic disputes in Quebec uh, about the treatment of, of some of their expenses, and uh, I, I think that they could clean that up. I don't think the position of the provincial auditor is unreasonable. Uh, there's a lot of negotiation and discussion that goes al uh, along with these things. Um, so it's a bit of a mystery to me that in Quebec there isn't a bit more uh, uh, impetus for the provincial government to clean some of those things up. Um, now, it's not pass-fail the way that we do this. Uh, the, the auditors general have often commented to us about this report card that we should give more weight to their opinions than we do. And I understand their position. If you're not complying with the public sector accounting standards, then that's a pretty serious fall down. Um, as I mentioned, we, we, we measure other criteria as well. Uh, we look at timeliness. We look at how easily the numbers are identifiable. Um, but in Quebec's case, that's a really uh, important problem that they just have not addressed over the years. You intimated about this at the beginning of our conversation, but you've got a city review coming out as well soon. We do, and the cities are uh, at the moment in in a worse place on average than the uh, senior governments are because cities have continued 
uh, by and large, to budget on a basis that is completely inconsistent with how they report their financial results. And that means that you can't look at a city budget and anticipate what the bottom line is going to be. And when you are looking at the financial results after the year is ended, it's very hard for you to reconcile what happened with what the budget predicted. And that's a problem for accountability. I mean, uh, as, as, as we've been discussing already, if there's a big gap between budgets and results, uh, then it really calls into question the whole budgeting process. I mean, you're, you, you, you on the face of it seem to be putting a document in front of your, uh, your legislators that isn't a reliable guide to what's going to happen. So what's the point of that? Um, over time at the municipal level, we are seeing a number of cities who are now providing at least supplementary budget information that does match their financial statements. And one of the things that I... Uh, uh, hope that will will result from that is uh, just a better understanding of the financial condition of cities and and particularly the ability that they have to invest in capital projects. Cities are very big investors in infrastructure. Uh, that's uh, so much of what they do, far more than is the case with the federal or the provincial governments. And one of the things that uh, is problematic about the way that they budget is that they separate their capital budgets from their operating budgets. And so at budget time, you're not seeing the big picture. And what has been happening, uh, but not very widely noticed because the financial statements get less attention than the budgets do, is that cities in general have been running uh, a pretty tight ship. Uh, they run consistently surpluses. Some cities run surpluses that are so large that I think people would be quite surprised if they saw them and, and, and maybe there'd be a bit of pressure to spend more during the year, uh, which is one of the reasons why some city managers uh, prefer this other kind of uh, budgeting process to try and uh, keep some of that pressure at bay. Um, but I think that it's in general a good thing for people to know that their cities are in such good financial shape. And often I think if they knew that cities were in such good financial shape and they were able to look at an overall budget um, that was consistent with the way they present their results, they'd be a little readier to approve some of the capital projects, uh, roads, infrastructure, sewers, public transit, whatever the case may be, uh, that at the moment uh, when you're budgeting on a cash basis, as they do at the beginning of the year, these things can look very expensive. And uh, we might actually see a little bit more movement on some of the infrastructure spending that we'd like to see cities do. I'm not sure that that would be the result, but at the moment, it's very hard for people looking at municipal budgets to see clearly uh, the the healthy state that most cities' finances are in and the and the possibility that they could do a little bit more on that front than they're doing. So once you've dotted the I's and crossed the T's, you'll come back and we'll have a big conversation about this? I would love to do it. And in the case of the cities, uh, I do want to give the shout outs to the ones that have begun to present more transparent information uh, that's easier to use because uh, every every city councillor has all kinds of things uh, to be thinking about. They got all their constituency work. They've got all, all kinds of pressures on their time. It would be a very nice thing if more of them at budget time uh, could get a document that they could easily take in. Uh, I've had former city councillors and including one radio host that uh, I talked to about these results uh, who who have said uh, after they left the job that they never wanted to admit that they couldn't understand the budget. Oh, jeez. What, what sort of a situation is that? Uh, it, you really ought to be presenting your councillors with a budget that's straightforward to understand and then at the end of the year, uh, easy to compare with the results to see how well you did. Oh, thanks for ending this conversation with a pit in my stomach. <laughs> They don't know what they're voting on? 
It's well, I think I, I wouldn't like to say that nobody knows what they're voting on, but it, it is a it is a very opaque process. And um, it's it, it, it there's an interesting tension out there when it comes to uh, the way cities present their results, because a lot of cities will say even in their budget documents that the, the public sector accounting standards that they use in presenting their results make a lot of sense. Uh, and particularly because of the way they treat capital assets, these long-lived assets. And yet at budget time, uh, they insist on presenting the numbers in a different way. And it's no wonder that a councillor who is you know, motivated and, and can do arithmetic, uh, but isn't an expert on accounting, uh, would find this whole process a bit baffling. Bill, great speaking with you. Thank you for your time and insight today. My pleasure. Thank you. Bill Robson is the CEO of the C.D. Howe Institute. For more unreliable budgets and the stars and dogs of senior government transparency, visit cdhow.org. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.